This morning's text will be in John chapter 7, so if you go ahead and begin turning there. It'll be in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Today we're going to be looking up, or looking at this passage as this Feast of Booths is coming to a close, and as Jesus is making some more statements and others are making statements about him. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer ask for his help with the scriptures. Dear Lord, as we come to your word, pray that you would help us, that you would guide us, so that we might interpret it correctly, so we might understand it correctly. Open our hearts, that we might be convicted of our sin through it, that we might see the gospel more clearly, that we might see our role as servants to you, as ambassadors to this world more clearly as we read the pages of your word. So again, Father, open our eyes that we might see the truths here within. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week, and I guess the last few weeks, I've been hearing a lot of this uh, documentary on Netflix called Making of a Murderer. You guys have probably heard about it, at least, at least, uh, Side note about it here or there. And basically a man who was falsely accused and jailed for one t- crime, allegedly, and was let go all these years later, then allegedly commits another murder, which he was falsely accused of again, and uh, convicted this time and put into jail again. And so the whole documentary is to show the corruption in the system and the conviction of this uh, supposedly innocent man. And it's a very convincing documentary from what I read about. I haven't actually watched it myself. I don't know the person involved. I haven't watched the show. But there's a lot of buzz around the show. And what's amazing to me is how the populace at large, most people that I've talked to and most people that I've read, seem to believe that this man is innocent of murder and that he should be set free. And it's even garnered the attention of the president. They tried to get him to pardon this man, which, you know, the president said it's a state thing and I can't do that. But that he would even say something about this is pretty incredible. And I, again, I'm not going to take a side, but I will say that it's fascinating to see that so many in our world, believers, unbelievers alike, who have watched this, can sense and have this feeling, this strong feeling of injustice. When some kind of injustice has, a, has occurred or apparently occurred, there's this real strong sense, this terrible feeling that we can't escape. We all hate to see innocent people suffer, even if they're apparently innocent or maybe not innocent. I don't know. And so when we read the pages of the New Testament, we encounter here Jesus Christ, the only one who was ever truly innocent, And the injustice that he faced day in and day out from the Jewish leadership. We're going to see some here in this passage today. They attempted to arrest him. They followed him around. They challenged him constantly on his beliefs, on things that he said. We're always at him, constantly. And later, of course, he would face the greatest injustice ever by anyone ever death on the cross, dying for the sins of his people who deserved the wrath of God and took it in their place. 
So in today's passage, we're going to see some of the interactions that Jesus has with the leadership of the Jewish leadership, and we're going to see him bring this Feast of Booths into clear view. And he's going to demonstrate that again that the feast is ultimately about him and the promises of the new covenant. And so with that, we're going to consider two points, that the Messiah comes, yet many do not know, and secondly, that those who know are forever changed. And so with that, let's stand together as we read from God's Word. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Hear now God's Word. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they saw and they saw or say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But have I not Come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him who and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek after me, and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answers, answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone, bef- who had gone to him before, and who was, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated.
And so again, the Feast of Booths is still at hand. And this is a week-long feast, and so all of these interactions are taking place within this week where Jesus is here among the people teaching in the temple. And with all of its ceremony, there was a lot of ceremony going on with the Feast of Booths, lots of very visible things. Remember we talked about the purpose of the feast, that the people were to live in huts in the street. They were to kind of live out of their house and were to like construct these huts made of branches. They were to remember that the Lord was the one who brought them through the wilderness. And they escaped Egypt. That, that, that they should humble themselves before the Lord. Remembering the time that they spent in those makeshift huts out in the desert. And this was a commemoration of that. Well, one part of this feast was called the water ceremony. And this is where priests would walk in a procession every day to this pool called Siloam, which is featured in other parts of the gospel. And they would fill a pitcher of water. And then they would walk together in procession to the temple, and they would dump this pitcher of water out into a funnel, and the water would funnel down to the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And this was a symbol of water being the, this cleansing factor. And then they would sing together Psalm 118, which we had today in our bulletin. They would sing together those, that first little passage there that I have there printed. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. This passage is going to be featured prominently soon when Jesus proceeds into Jerusalem on a colt, where they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's what Psalm 118 is. And so part of their singing in this Feast of Booths is a recognition that they need salvation from the Lord. Save us, O oh Lord, Hosanna is what they're shouting. Because this symbolism from the Old Testament, again, is the symbolism of the Messiah. And so let's go look in the Old Testament concerning this. Let's first look at Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. A fairly short chapter, so I'm just going to read all of it. And again, keep in mind this view of the water and the symbolism of the Messiah and the symbolism of this feast altogether. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation." With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let, let this be made known in all the earth. Sing or shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Obviously this is pointing forward to the Messiah. This time when this will go forth, this salvation song will be a very present thing among the people. Turn again to, or turn forward to Isaiah 44. We'll see more of this same language. Verses 1 through 5. Again, looking at this, this whole water motif. 
But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and, and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up from the grass like willows by flowing streams. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, the name himself by the name of Israel. And then one more, Ezekiel 36, one that we've read lots of times, but it's, we need to read again this morning to ground us in what's going on and what the Lord is saying here. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. says this, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your un uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. What is Jesus talking about when he stands up and says to receive him and from you will be water flowing, rivers of eternal life? What is he saying? Water and its association with the Holy Spirit's cleansing and the coming of the Messiah, all of these things are very closely linked in the Old Testament. And this feast and this ceremony of water are all symbolizing this thing. This is what the people are most looking forward to. What did Jesus, or what did, what did John say? He said, on the, great, on the last day of the feast, the great day. This is what this is all culminating towards. And of course, we know on this side that Jesus is all the fullness of these types. But we know, why? Because we're his, and he's caused us to know. And you're going to see a sharp distinction here between those who know him and those who don't. Because those who know him see and believe. And those who don't, they want him dead. They seek injustice because of their, in their sins they can't see Jesus for who he is, the Lord of all creation. And that brings us to the first point. The Messiah comes and many don't know it. 27 through 20, or 25 through 27 of John 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this man not whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? They don't want to kill him, maybe because they really think he's the Christ. Many were amazed that Jesus could just be here and teach out in the open. And so here, they claim to know where he comes from. Well, we know where this guy is from. And they also say that the script, they also say, crazily enough, that in the scriptures it says that no one will know where the Christ comes from. Well, it doesn't say that in the scriptures. That's more of a uh, rabbinical teaching there to try to uh, mysti mystify the coming of the Savior. Because in scripture, in Micah 5.2, it says that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, from the city of David, and will be of the line of David. They know exactly where Jesus is from. They know who his parents are. They know what his lineage is. They're not dumb. 
they are so desperate to have Jesus, to not have Jesus as their Messiah, that they're going to do any kind of mental gymnastics to make to keep that from happening. And so Jesus responds to that. He says, you know me, and you know where, I'm, where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me, and him you do not know. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, and for I come from him, he sent me. Again, you know me. You know where I'm from. The one who sent me, you do not know. So again, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with this concept of belief, which we've been dealing with for several chapters now. Jesus makes it clear that these men, they do not know the Father. Therefore, they cannot know the Son. And vice versa. If they don't know Jesus, they cannot know the Father. Even the learned, even the Pharisees, the scribes, the, uh, the Sanhedrin here, the leaders, none of them who claim to be Jewish, Jews among Jews, cannot know the Father God if they do not recognize the Son. But yet, look at verses 31 and 32. Yet, many believed in him. Because they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Even though being... Being with Jesus is going to become increasingly more and more of a criminal thing. We're going to see that as we go through, that being with Jesus is going to be attached to Jesus, and they're not only going to want Jesus, they're going to want everybody who was with him. Many still believed. They knew that everybody was out to kill Jesus, but yet these people believed anyway, and they professed. Even though the establishment refused to believe, they still believed in him. And their logic was really sound. Think about it. So, is the real Messiah then going to do more than this man has done? Is he going to make the lame to walk, the blind to see? Is he going to turn water to wine? Is he going to also feed the 5,000? Is he also going to walk on water? Because this, this man has done these things. Again, look at this. These people see and they know. The Pharisees, the, the leaders here, they see and they know. They know that Jesus did these things, yet... They refuse to believe that it is he. And what do they still do? They continue to push. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, I'm not sure what's going on here, because we read several times in this passage that they sent people to arrest him, and they're unable to do so. So I'm not really sure why they're unable to arrest him. It doesn't really get into that. For some reason, it just continues to confound the authorities. But it does tell us why they can't arrest him, because it's not his time yet. And Jesus goes on, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And I love their response. Where does he intend to go that we cannot find him? Pretty arrogant statement. What is he? Who does he think he is? That he can just disappear and us, us not be able to find him? It's usually the other way around, right? Man is attempting to hide from God. You've seen this all the way back from Genesis three, where man attempted to hide from God as if he could, and now we think now man thinks that he can find God whenever he pleases, as if he could. But now man, again, thinks that he can somehow outsmart the Lord of creation. They say, is he going to the dispersion? Is he going 
to spend time among the Jews that are out in the Roman Empire, the ones that aren't living in Israel? Is he going there? Does he think we can't find him there? And so what is he saying? You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Again, this is a question of belief. Jesus seemingly has them perplexed because what he's talking about is completely over the heads of anyone who is spiritually dead in their sins. In fact, they can't even see him for more than what he is. They can't see him at all for any more than just a man who has said some, some crazy things about, his, about himself being God and who has done some things, maybe pulled some kind of charlatan tricks. I mean, you have to understand, the mind of the unbeliever cannot accept what it sees because it cannot know things that are spiritually discerned. They want to trick themselves. They want to say, well, obviously he's doing some kind of trickery. He's not more than a man because how could anybody be more than a man? They refuse to see it. Recently I saw a Doug Wilson quote. Doug Wilson's a Reformed pastor. And uh, I think his quote sums it up very nicely. He's an apologist as well, and he deals with lots of atheists. He actually uh, debated Christopher Hitchens all over the country a few years ago. It's pretty interesting to listen to. But uh, he says, Atheists believe two things about God. That they are absolutely certain that he does not exist, and they hate him. That they are absolutely certain that he does not exist, and they hate him. I think that sums it up nicely. The Jewish leaders with Jesus, they are absolutely certain that he is not the Christ, yet they must kill him. They are absolutely certain that he is not what he says he is, yet he must die. Jesus faced the worst kind of injustice that we'll ever know, that we'll ever read about. And it should shock our hearts to read about it, frankly. His death was to purchase the sins of a people who, like the ones here, called Jesus a liar and wanted him dead. That was us. There is no indifference concerning our Savior. Those in him who know that he is their Lord and Savior, they will know that he is their God. Those who don't know that, what will they do? They will call him a liar. They will hate him. If you've ever dealt with someone who doesn't know the Lord, this is all they can do. They will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God in their minds. But they will also make fun of the God of the universe. Which doesn't make sense to us, but it makes perfect sense to them. Because they're dead in their sins. And he has this crowd completely polarized, many of them believing, many of them hating him for some unknown reason. What does this mean for us? And I really thought through this. To me, if you think about this, think about the situation that Jesus is in. He has many people believing him and many people that hate him, and there's really no in-between. You can't have this in-between about Jesus. He either is who he says he is, or he's a liar. Those are the two extremes. He's your Lord or Savior, or he's a nobody and you want him dead. Because he claims to be God of your universe, and yet you claim to be God of your universe. You can't have two. They'll either believe in him, or they'll deny him, which is to hate him. And so, in my mind, our job... As ambassadors, our job as ones who should be telling the world about Jesus is pretty easy because there's going to be one or two responses. 
They're going to love him. Or they're going to hate him. Why the hate? Because anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is that he is their Lord, believes that they are their own Lord. And everything that comes out of their mouth is going to substantiate that claim. I can accept that because I know that what they're saying is not true. They believe intrinsically that they are their own boss and Jesus is a direct threat to that, so they despise him. The Pharisees saw him as a threat to their power and their position in Israel. So they wanted him dead because they really truly did believe that he was the Christ. They knew deep down in their hearts, just like the Bible tells us, everybody knows deep down that there is a God and they hate him. The unbelievers hate him anyway. We see his we see him as a threat sometimes even even as believers, brothers and sisters, anytime we sin, we see him as a threat to our own perceived sovereignty. But either way, I think our job is pretty simple. We tell others about him. We let him sort out the results. Our world is very much like this atmosphere at the Feast of Booths, if you really think about it. There's a lot of talk about religion. I think more now than ever. This, the talk to try to snuff it out is talk about religion. People are concerned about it. People don't want to talk about it, therefore they're talking about it. Everyone thinks about it to one degree or another. Be it the super Christian type over here, or be it the super hate Christians type over here. And everyone in between. Everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone has a thought on the matter when it comes to Christianity. The students in my school, they're all thinking about it. They're all talking about it. Particularly in this part of the world. I mean, think about what we have here. Most everyone here thinks that they're a Christian. So it should make it fairly easy to talk about. But if you ask somebody a question about their Christianity, they seize up. And I think also, we have to see ourselves, and this is most important, particularly when we're going out to the lost, we have to see ourselves as recovering from the condition of the Pharisees. We have to see ourselves as recovering from the condition of these who were lost here at the Feast of Booths. We were like them, brothers and sisters. We weren't better. We needed salvation too. We were just recovering. We were once dead in our trespasses and our sins, but now we see, only because the Lord of Light gave us that light. And so this should cause us to do what? Be humble before our Savior, who suffered injustice for us, his people, because we spit on him, because we cursed him. We, like those who traveled in the wilderness, owe it all to him. And we have this day, the Sabbath, as we come together to remember him and set our hearts right for the remaining days of the week. We have the sacrament here to teach our hearts even more as we reflect upon and as we reflect upon it. We see a vivid picture of Jesus' death. And so let me encourage you, put yourself in their position. Understand where they're coming from. It'll cause you to love them. It'll cause you to pity them. We really do. You really will love the lost when you remember that you were once them. And you only are better off because of what Jesus did, not because of anything you've done. And so that brings us to the next point, that those who know him are forever changed. So on the last day of the feast, they're starting at verse 37, the great day. Jesus stands up and you can see him. You can picture Jesus crying out in the middle of this water procession that I mentioned earlier. I mean, it's like perfect timing. He stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
This should take us back to the verses that we read earlier in the Old Testament. This should take us back to the passage that we looked at last week in Exodus 17, right? Water from the rock, and the rock was Christ. Hopefully, we should see the full picture here that Christ is offering something that this feast of booths can only point to. He is offering himself as the sacrifice, which will buy eternal life for his children. Come and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, Jesus is tying up this idea of partaking of his offering, what he offers as belief, and belief that leads to eternal life. And then you have this, what he says about the Spirit. What should this make us think about? This should make us think about the new covenant promises. Remember the new covenant promise that we read there in Ezekiel, that he will put his spirit within us. And what will his spirit cause us to do? Walk in his ways, to follow after him. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Just another reminder of this promise. These verses, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, they should be nearer to us because that's what we're living now, today. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Let's look together at this passage. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each, one, each brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. This is the verse. This is the passage that they should be looking at when they see the feast. And this is what they should be going back to when they see Jesus stand up and cry. He is the new covenant promises. He is the day that will come. Some of them were conflicted, is what we read about. Some of them were saying, is this really the prophet? Others were saying, this is the Christ. But others were saying, is this the, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Which is pretty ironic because in verse 42, they note that the scripture says the Christ is the offspring of David. And he's to come from Bethlehem. And they knew where Christ was from. They knew his lineage. And some still wanted to arrest him. For what? And some believed. Again, you see this polarity, taking on the righteousness of Christ in belief versus seeking to kill him. Strong polarity here. Nicodemus is there, and I'd like to think at this point Nicodemus is a budding convert, still sorting it all out, but he was the only one that wanted any kind of justice for Jesus. And he actually quoted scripture and says, hey, we need to give this man a fair trial. But the ones who knew scripture by heart said, no, are you siding with him now? Are you from Galilee too? 
they didn't want to give him justice. They wanted his head on a platter. And so it brings us to where we were earlier. What do we do with Jesus? I mean, for us, his people, what does he give us? He gives us these waters of life. And upon them comes the Holy Spirit, from which we are now able to please the Father. That is a very good thing. We are able to do the works that Jesus did. Not the signs and wonders. Not those. But we are able to worship the Father now. We are able to call upon His name. We are able to believe in Him for eternal life. We are able to tell others that the kingdom of God is at hand. We are able to read His words and see them as truth. And see them how they bear upon our lives. And not spit them out in disgust. We love His words now because of what He's done for us and the change that He's caused in us. What we do with the Spirit within us sets us apart from the world that has no God. They are like blind beggars, wandering the streets, thinking they completely have it made, not knowing that there is a king who they need only call upon, and he will save them. And so this is where we come in, right? We have our own struggles, to be sure, because what do we want to do? We want to don our blind beggar outfit from time to time and go back out into the streets because we remember back on it fondly, forgetting how terrible it was. We're strange people like that. Like Israel wandering around the wilderness. They sometimes wanted to go back to Egypt because they forgot that, that they finally cried out to the Lord for deliverance while they were in Egypt. So we will struggle with our own belief and our own unbelief. That's part of the Christian life. And we have to struggle, frankly, lest we be overtaken by it and thrust into despair. We have to fight. We must fight as believers. However, we must also tell the lost world about the Savior, about Jesus Christ. And some might say, well, if we can't change their hearts, then why do we need to tell them? If, we can't, if we're not actually in the business of changing people's hearts and convincing them, which we're not, then why do we even need to tell them? Why don't we just leave it up to Jesus and turtle up in our churches? Because the Lord commanded us to do it. He commanded us to go out into the world to the uttermost and proclaim his name. We should be compelled to see the deliverance of those around us and want them to be a friend of God rather than his enemy. And if you're an unbeliever, that's you, an enemy of God. The Lord Jesus, when he comes back, he will leave no stone unturned seeking out his enemies and seeking to destroy them. In the book of Revelation, it says that the leaders of the earth will want for the mountains to fall upon them rather than to face the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in judgment. And so now call upon the name of the Lord. If you're an unbeliever, be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord now. Take for yourself the righteousness of Christ, and you can have him take the wrath that you deserve. So real quickly in, in Revelation, to conclude, turn to Revelation 22. And I've been fascinated in my study this week is, is just seeing all these connections in Scripture of this concept of the waters and the Holy Spirit and Jesus making those connections. Revelation 22, verse 17. It says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let 
the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. Borrowing from Isaiah 55 here. Come and take the water of life without price. The world is desperate for this message. And they don't know it. So Christian, let us tell the world. Let us start in our own families. Let us start in our own workplaces making sure that they know that Jesus is Lord and they can call upon him to have eternal life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come today, as we come here to your feast that you have set aside for us, your supper, help us be reminded that this feast even just points forward to what you've done for us points forward to your sacrifice for us, your death on the cross so that we might have eternal life. So Lord, help us to look towards you. And Lord, help us to look at the lost in such a way to see them as blind beggars that need a Savior, that need hope. And let you do the work of conversion as we just simply proclaim your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.